0: A simple God. He's all of these things, but I think about. It's my word to ask you. What are the marks of the Bible? That's a harder question. The question we don't really think about too much. If I want to ask you. What are the attributes of Scripture? I'm not sure it's the question we can answer, but I'll answer it for you right now, very quickly. Um, Ethiogram here. Scan. What are the attributes of the Bible? The attributes, of, the marks of Scripture, are scan. The sufficiency of Scripture. It is enough. The clarity of Scripture. You can get it. It's clear. The authority of Scripture, it is, well, authoritative. And the necessity of it, you, you need it. We're going to look at the first two this morning. Uh, we've kind of hit on, we'll hit on the last two as we sprinkle through, I'll sprinkle them throughout the rest of the course. We've hit on them a little bit already. But we begin today, this morning, with uh, what is particularly the weak point, I think, of many uh, many Christians who believe the Bible. Our weak point, if you will. You know, if... Um, if, if for a classic modern liberal, authority is the issue, the Bible is a, it's a historical document, it's open to all sorts of problems. If clarity is kind of the postmodern issue, the Bible's not clear, you have all sorts of interpretations. And if necessity is the atheist issue, uh, I don't believe in God, there's no, there's no need for the Bible. Now, I think sufficiency really is our issue. Sufficiency is the one that uh, we kind of forget first. Why do I say that? Well... Let me give you the definition of what sufficiency is. Very simply put, the Scriptures contain all you need to know for salvation, all you need to know for life. Sufficiency is that the Bible contains everything you need to know for salvation and for godly living. You don't need a new revelation. I think we can say the right things about the Bible. We can say that. We, we can, we're pretty good at knowing we should be reading the Bible. Yeah in the modern American church. But the issue for us is that in our difficult times, in our hard lives, and the challenges, when we come up with the rubber and the road and they meet together, we want more. This suddenly is not sufficient. It's not enough. It's not good enough. It's, it's good to read through. It's good to memorize some verses. It's good to know the, the doctrines. But when the hard times come, you know, I'm mesmerized by a story of a kid who went to heaven for 90 minutes and came back. I mean, that's a really that's a bestseller in the in the Christian church these days. It's been a bestseller for 15 years. 90 minutes in heaven, and all the sequels, all the ones that are like it. That seems more impressive to me than this right here. Or we're mesmerized by TV shows, you know, that that claim to give us the real backstory to the disciples. This is the example, you know, the popular TV show right now, The Chosen. Some I mean, of y'all even have talked to me about it. It's very popular. You may not know, it's written by Mormons. It comes out among among other issues, it, it actually attacks the sufficiency of, of God's word. Does that mean you can't watch it. I'm not saying you shouldn't you, you can't you can't watch it, of course, but you need to be aware of what it actually is. What it actually is and what it isn't. Yes, sir, Greg. Let say experts too. Exactly, we'll get to that more actually in, in the clarity, you know, the clarity section. Is the Bible clear do you need a, a priest to interpret it for you, for example? Yeah, so the basic argument here is that with sufficiency, Jesus Christ is the last and full revelation of God, the final and full. Let me give you Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. We've hit it before. It's just a great text, classic text. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. These last days, last days, last revelation, and I think a part, a a, a thing we don't connect is last redemption. The sufficiency of God is not just that his revelation is the final revelation. We'll we'll get to the question, for example, that our charismatic brothers and sisters bring up. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. The question of, is there a further revelation, a further blessing of the Holy Spirit that we are to expect? We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. And I think a lot of us are pretty clear on the fact that, yes, Jesus Christ is the final revelation, but we don't always connect it with Jesus Christ as the final act of God's redemption. And these two are interlinked. Revelation and redemption are connected. If we say that Revelation's incomplete, then we say implicitly that God's salvation, God's redemptive work, is incomplete. Nothing, therefore, the doctrine is nothing, can be added to the work of Christ. Nothing can be added to the revelation of that work. As Bobbing puts it, in Christ, God's revelation has been completed. So quickly, let me give you uh, four applications. Any questions on that? We are running through it. It's Donut Day. Got to get through a lot of stuff here. Any questions on uh, the doctrine put forth? The one scripture I use to argue for it, we can get. I can give you more if need be, but um, any questions on sufficiency of the doctrine we need to hold to? Let me give you four application points then. First, sufficiency keeps tradition in its right and proper place. We talk a lot today about diversity. There's a lot in the air about diversity, and there's one diversity we forget. The dead. We forget the dead. We have a privilege today because we're living and breathing. You're alive. Other people don't don't have the privilege of being alive right now. It is true that we neglect in many ways the great teachers who've come before us, but no secondary catechism or creed should be allowed to take us away from the Bible. That's why we look to our confessions and creeds, because we think they, they help us understand the Bible more. Tradition has a supportive role in a confirming place we'll get to that in more detail in the weeks to come. Sufficiency says that it's enough. The Bible is enough for you. the Bible's enough for you. Second point we don't add to or subtract from the Word of God. You know you have to remember that when you open the Bible you're reading a book that is a covenantal book it's a book that's a covenantal document and that means in every covenant back in the day, like in here, there's always a curse. There's always a curse added towards the very end that says, look, if you, if you add in a new clause, you're going to be cursed. Just like we do today. I mean, you know, when, when the U.S. signs a treaty with Russia or China or somebody, it's a formal document. You can't let the Chinese go in there and just add in a secret clause. You can't let the U.S., you can't let us go in there and add a clause a month afterwards, and say, you know, oh, sorry, we lied. No, no, no. Same thing with the Bible. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, the Israelites are warned against adding anything to the law of Moses, but supremely. uh, Revelation 22, 18 and 19, very famous. One of the proofs that this is a covenantal book. The very end of it, we have a warning not to add, not to take away, subtract from God's word. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plague described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And a lot of folks may say, well, that's just revelation. It's at the end of the whole canon. Therefore, by, impl- uh, by implication, it's the whole Bible that we are not to take away uh, or add anything. We're not to add anything to make it more in line with our assumptions. We're not to take away the hard edges of Scripture. It is sufficient. It is enough. Uh, third application, the Word is supposed to be relevant. You can expect that when you open up the Bible, it's not going to be irrelevant. It's going to be all you need, Second Peter 1.3, all you need for life and for godliness enough to make us wise for salvation? I think this is the real question. This is why we don't, this is why sufficiency is our particular bugaboo, because we don't, when it comes down to it, we believe the kid who went to heaven over what the Bible says about heaven. When it comes down to it, we watch the the chosen, because we want the real details about the disciples or about Peter and Paul or about Jesus, and we don't want to go here. We want more information. We want to know what did they eat, what did they do, what what, what conversations did they have. The word is relevant. It doesn't mean that God does not tell us everything we want to know about everything, but he does tell us everything we need to know about what matters most. It's not exhaustive, but when it speaks, it's true. You can know how to turn from your sin. You can know how to find a savior. You can know how to make good decisions in life. You can know how to please God. And finally, I think most supremely, Sufficiency helps you understand that you can open your Bible and you can hear God's voice. And this, again, is a besetting sin of the American church, uh, of myself, of, of, of so many. We, we plan, right? We, we strategize, we, we cast vision, we dream, we seek to kind of mutually discern. But so often we fail to open our Bibles. So, so often we fail to open the Word of God. God's Word's right here. It's more than enough for the people of God. Um, so the question, I think, for us is, are we going to bother to open it? Are we going to bother to listen to God's voice? Not that we can't you know, plan, not that we can't dream, not that we can't even in some proper way cast vision, uh, but is that the first thing we do, or is that what we do after we come to the Word? So that's 10 minutes, I suppose, on uh, sufficiency. I don't know if that's enough or too little, but that's what uh, what I have for us. Questions on sufficiency? As an attribute of the Bible. Hopefully you see the need for it. Comments? Pushback? All right. Moving on then to clarity. The clarity, sometimes called the perspicuity, if you want the fancy term. You can now impress people. You can say, I believe the Bible is perspicuous, and they will have no idea what you mean. Uh, What is the doctrine? John Frame, whom I usually don't quote, but here he's very good. John Frame says this, God's word is clear enough to make us responsible for carrying out our present responsibility to God. It's clear enough to make us responsible for carrying out our present responsibility to God. Clarity is not just saying something about the Bible, but it's saying something about you in light of the Bible. Because the Bible is clear, therefore we're responsible for... For what it says, and um, we have a great explanation of the clarity of Scripture in our Confession of Faith. I put it here on the handout because I think it's important for us to kind of look at it, and then uh, I'll I'll go through it in plain English. But I'll read it first. Uh, One WCF, one seven, first chapter, seventh section. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear to all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned but also the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. What does that mean? Let me break it down for us. Um, I think at least five things. First, some parts of the Bible are clearer than others. Not every part of the Bible is equally clear. Not every passage, you may be thinking here, I'm thinking here, of course, in our recent series in Genesis, the genealogy of Esau. It's a tricky, tricky text to see the relevance, the the clarity of that. Not every passage has has an obvious meaning or a simple meaning. Second, the main things you need to know, you need to believe, you need to do, can be seen clearly in the Bible, the main things need to know. The main things need to believe. The main things need to do can be seen in Scripture. Third, the most essential doctrines are all made clear somewhere in Scripture. The essential text, beliefs, are made clear. uh, Fourth, what is necessary for our salvation can be understood, this gets to Greg's point, even by the uneducated key qualifier, provided that they make use of the ordinary means of study and learning. The ordinary means of Bible study. Don't expect, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're not educated, don't expect that you'll kind of magically understand the Bible. That's not the promise that God gives. He gives in the human language for a reason. We're supposed to study it and look to it. But you can understand it. You think, of course, here, a classic example would be John Bunyan, a tinker, Not an educated man, unlike many of the Puritans, and yet understood the Scriptures. And then lastly, um, the most important points in the Bible may not be understood perfectly, but can be understood sufficiently. So summarizing it here, this is uh, in the handout. Ordinary people using ordinary means can accurately understand enough of what must be known to be faithful Christians. That's the doctrine right there. The Bible is clear. Not equally clear. Not all things are clear. But it's clear enough for you, no matter who you are, where you are, to understand ordinarily what must be known to faithful Christians. Questions on that? Now, again, I haven't proven it. I haven't answered objections. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Any questions from the doctrine itself? Can I make it more clear? <laughs> a joke. Not a very good one. Thank you all for the pity laugh. All right, let's Let's uh, let's go ahead and let me hit, hit a couple of objections here. There are three major objections. The first is what you might call the mystical objection. You know, I heard, I heard this all the time uh, when I was at Fuller Seminary and uh, during my time in the emergent church, which didn't really amount to much, it seems like. But God is so transcendent. He, he's so transcendent, he can't be known with words. You can't put God in a box. Have you heard that? You can't put God in a box, right? We need to recognize. That God is free from our man made views of God. And this can be put in a fancy way by the scholars that say, look, this is just a historical document. You know, it's not a transcendent document. It's a bunch of, you know, people trying to figure out what God's like. And, uh, you know, faith really is a mystery. Faith is a mystery. Christ says there's a mystery. The Bible talks about the mystery of faith. You know, and truth cannot be captured in propositions. You can't capture reality in words. You should be totally and radically uncertain about your interpretation of the Bible. This is this is the uh, the argument because God's so big, he can't be talked about in words. That's the mystical objection. And I'll answer these as we as we kind of after we go through them. Second, the Roman Catholic objection. The Roman Catholic objection is the Bible is not sufficiently clear in everything. Parts are clear, maybe, but it's incomplete. It needs to be supplemented. It needs to be uh, helped and explained and augmented by tradition. If you read the Bible on your own, you're going to make mistakes. I mean, look at those Protestants. They have wacky people out there. They have people that hold snakes, you know, up in the mountains in Tennessee. That's weird, and that's wrong. That's what happens when you just let anybody on their own read the Bible. You need somebody to be authoritative. You need to give an expert binding interpretation in the Roman Catholic Church. That's the magisterium. In other words, the pope and those bishops in communion with him. Um, So the Bible is not clear in all its parts. Third, the pluralist objection. You've heard this one, I'm sure. You claim your Bible is so clear, Christian... Riddle me this. Why are there 30,000 different denominations? If the Bible is so clear, why can't you Christians agree on what it means? This is often used by the Roman Catholics, actually, and to argue against Protestants as well. And moreover, you claim to know what the Bible means, but how can you say that when it's been used to justify slavery or the Crusades, violence in the name of God? And then, of course, similar to the mystical objection, can any of us really know if an interpretation is right or wrong? I think these are three common, seemingly pr- pretty powerful objections to uh, the clarity of Scripture. Let's, uh, in answering them, let me just kind of begin by looking at what the Bible says. Anything else you want to talk about with those objections? Are there any objections that you have that I didn't mention, that you, you, I mean, you don't have, but you know of, that I didn't mention, I think you've heard? that doesn't fall into one of those three categories. Okay, let me ask you to turn to Deuteronomy, somebody at least, not all of to Deuteronomy 30. If somebody could read Deuteronomy 30, verse 11 through verse 14, that would be great. Moses here speaking to the Israelites, reassuring them that God's word is not beyond them. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11 to 14. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Thank you, Brad. The word's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, you hear that, and as good Protestants, as maybe even a little Reformed leaning, you're saying, no, I can't do it. I know the word comes to me, and I know I fail. That is true if you're speaking about justification. But Moses is not talking here about how we are to be justified before God by works or by faith. He is speaking here to those who are God's called people. Those who are God's free people. And he says, look, the word of God can be understood. It can be obeyed. You don't have to go to heaven in some mystical, transformative experience to know God's word. You don't have to cross an ocean to find it. It's right here. It's not inaccessible. Calvin comments in this text. God does not give us obscure mysteries to keep our minds in suspense and torment us with difficulty, but teaches familiarly whatever is necessary according to our capacity. God is not like tricking you. He's not the Riddler. I can use a Batman example. He's not trying to deliberately trick you, he's not trying to uh, tease you, he's not wanting to play with you and say, ha ha. <laughs> Here's a bit of my word. Nope, nope, you can't quite get it. It's not like the way I play with my cat. Rather, he familiarly comes close to you and talks to you. He teaches you. To continue, Psalm 119 and 105. We sing. I sing this growing up. The words a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Thank you, Amy Grant. Very true. God is light. God's word is clear. God's word is bright. It's a lamp. That that means it's not a flickering lamp. It's not a lamp that goes on sometimes and off sometimes. It's a lamp and a light. It constantly lights up where we are to go. It shows us the path. It's clear. It's bright. I think additionally, if we uh, were to spend some time looking at 2 Kings 22 and 23, we'd see the recovery of the Word of God under King Josiah. Remember the scenario? King Josiah... He finds the book of the law, a copy of the book of the law in the, in the temple. Some argue, actually, what he found was the book of Deuteronomy, the whole book, including the curses. Some, some argue that uh, what they had before was just the Deuteronomy without the curses. I, I don't know if I buy that or not. That's an interesting speculation. I don't know if we can say one way or the other. But the implication is that copy of the book of the law was clear, and they could interpret it, they could understand it. Um, In fact, this this begins to answer one of the questions we had last week about the Christian doctrine of inerrancy, the doctrine of the inerrancy of the Scriptures in the originals. How can we believe in copies of the original if we know that copies can be corrupted? And one way to answer that question is look at how the Bible itself addresses copies of itself. How does the Bible speak about copies of the Bible? We see here with Josiah, 2 Kings 22 and 23, that the copy of the book of the law was treated as legitimate, clear, binding from the Lord. We see it in a place like Jeremiah 36 as well. King Zedekiah famously cuts off a portion of the scroll of Jeremiah and burns it in the fire. What does God say to Jeremiah, to Baruch and Jeremiah? He says, hey, get Baruch, get your guide to rewrite a copy of all that I have given you. And he does, and it's treated as Scripture. A copy, therefore, of the original autograph, that is the original words, not the actual scrolls themselves, original words, are treated as Scripture. Supremely, I think the the closing example would be what Christ does in Luke 4. Where he comes to the synagogue in Capernaum, and he reads uh, Luke four seventeen, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now, which scroll was it? Was that, was that the original scroll? Was that the quote original actual scroll? No, of course not. Of course, it wasn't the original scroll that Isaiah wrote down. It was the one they had in the, in the synagogue. It was a copy. But he unrolls it. He reads. And then he says, verse 21, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus Christ himself treats a copy of the autograph, of the words, as scripture. So that, that, that begins to kind of answer the question that, uh, that was asked last time about uh, copies. But if there's any follow-up, uh, we, can, uh, we can discuss that down the road as well. Um, The point is that the Bible, here's the point, you can look at your Bible in English and read it and trust that it's clear. Not equally in all parts, but it is clear. Now, what's at stake with this doctrine? And here's where where we begin to answer some of the objections in the last five minutes we have together before the donuts come out. I think that a lot of things are at stake here. First, beginning to answer the mystical and the pluralist objection, the question of human language is at stake here. The question of human language is at stake here. Um, you know that when God creates in Genesis, he creates by using words. He speaks and things happen. Uh, philosophers can, can refer to that in some way as speech act theory. We don't, need, we, don't need, we don't need theory to get to the point. Rather, very simply, God speaks and things happen. Now, it sounds very humble, doesn't it? It sounds super. I mean, this is what I encountered when I spoke with uh, plenty of my seminary colleagues uh, out in LA. Don't put God in a box. Don't put God in a box. It sounds very humble to say, look, you have part of the truth. You know the story of the elephant and the, the blind folks? And they, one grabs the trunk, one grabs the nose. I guess the trunk is the nose, one grabs the leg. One grabs the ear, and they say, oh, an elephant's an ear. Oh, an elephant is this huge tree-like thing. Oh, an elephant's a very kind of trunk-like thing. And they're all wrong. Of course, that sounds really cool to say, you, have, you Christians have part of the truth. I'm an atheist. I have part of the truth. The Muslim has part of the truth. But behind that assumption is the assumption that somebody sees the whole elephant. And usually that somebody's me, if I'm the one making the illustration. Right? It sounds very humble to say, look, don't put God in a box. You cannot exhaustively define God with your words, which is true. You can, no, none of us can exhaustively define God, because then you'd be God. You can't tell... He's infinite. You can't describe the infinite fully. And that's why there are three really crucial, dangerous assumptions when folks begin to say don't put God in a box you can't do, using words that's going to fail three dangerous assumptions in that statement first if god cannot be talked about exhaustively we can't say anything truthful about him the assumption is i have to know everything about a subject to say anything truthful about it and that's not true in your real life look i don't know a lot about how to fix a car but i can you know change the oil and change the tires I know enough to do the basics. And y'all, of course, probably know more, which is great. But even everybody in this room doesn't know all about a car and how a car works. You don't need to, to know truthful things about how a car works. And the same thing is true, infinitely more so, about God. That's the first dangerous assumption, that you need to be exhaustive to be truthful. No, you don't. Second, the second dangerous assumption is the Bible is not God revealing us to, himself to us, but it's a record of human talk about God. second assumption is that the Bible is not God's word to us. It's our kind of thoughts and murmurings about the divine. Of course, we've looked at that before, that these are divinely given words. They're inspired words. Third, I think this is also very dangerous, the assumption behind the pluralist and the mystical objection is that human language is so flawed and so impotent, so inaccurate, as to make it unsuitable for God to use. I think very crucial to understand the role of creation when it comes to language. God gives language to humans as a gift, not a curse. Yes, language can be misused. Yes, the, there is a, a, something true about the postmodern objection to Uh, Language as being manipulative. Yes, of course it can be misused. But if we are created in God's image, God gives us speech to converse with Him. This is creation. This is what He says. Adam, do this. Adam does it. Go Go and name the animals. He speaks the world into existence. And He gives us speech to be like Him in our speaking. God wanted to make Himself known through human language. The question does not of that. The question of language. Second, the question of freedom. The Protestant doctrine of clarity is one of the major reasons we have religious liberty in the West. The Protestant view of the clarity of the Bible is one of the key reasons that we believe historically, in religious liberty. If, because if the Bible is clear, then everybody has a responsibility to read it and understand it. If the Bible's not clear, you need the prayer of Jabez. If the Bible's not clear, you need the chosen. If the Bible's not clear, you need an expert, you need a priest. Or you need a secret mystical prayer. And therefore, we would argue that Jesus Christ, speaking in the Word, is the Lord of the conscience. Now, it's true that if everybody reads the Bible, you will get wacky snake handlers. If you come from a snake-handling church, you know, I apologize. Uh, It's true that, yes, if everybody can read the Bible, you're going to get wacky thoughts. But the positives outweigh the negatives. Bob Inc. again, he says this, The denial of the clarity of Scripture brings with it the subjection of the lay person to the priest. A freedom that cannot be enjoyed without the danger of license is still to be preferred to a tyranny that suppresses liberty. We don't want a tyranny that suppresses the liberty of your ability and my ability to read the Word of God. Hmm. I have 40 seconds. Let me hit very briefly in that time uh, that this doctrine also protects God. It allows God to speak and be clear. Don't gag God. Don't gag God. In all of our discussions about um, who can speak these days and hearing a voice and letting my voice be spoken, we often don't let God speak. This is God's speech. Let Him talk. Let Him have a right to speak. And as He has a right to speak, we realize that he is not just a God for the smarty pants or for the rich. He's not just a God for the influential. He's a God for all. William Tyndale, when he died, you may know William Tyndale said, part of his work of translating the Bible was that a plowman could read. He wanted the plowman. He wanted the the ordinary Joe to be able to read the Bible. His last words when he was dying were, open the eyes of the king of England. Open the eyes of the king to this word. Open the eyes to the clarity. So that's our prayer. Open our eyes, see marvelous things out of your word. Let me go ahead and close us in prayer. If you have any questions, I suppose uh, we can chat about it over donuts. And um, let, me, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for a word that is enough, that is sufficient. Not just useful for a time, it's enough for our lives. Thank you as well, Lord, that you give us a word that's clear, that we can understand. Help us to use the ordinary means to, Certainly of study and learning, but the ordinary means of prayer, the ordinary, ordinary means of your grace that you give to us in the Word. I pray you would encourage us to strengthen us as we enjoy fellowship as we come to worship you this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.